You're listening to episode two of the Service Design Podcast. I'm David Morgan, Service Designer at Night Moves, and together with my colleague Stina von Hof, and in collaboration with the Service Design Network, we have conversations about service design with practitioners from around the globe. In this episode, we'll be talking to Simone Carrier, who's Head of Service Design at FutureGov in London. She shares interesting stories about designing for governments, working across borders, and why FutureGov has a team of organization designers. Hi, Simone, and nice to meet you. It's David here, and I'm here with Stina. Hi. Hello. Hello, David. Hello, Stina. Hi. Hi. Uh, thanks for making the time to uh, speak with us. I understand uh, you can literally have a baby anytime now. Um, hopefully not right now, but soon, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope we make it through the entire interview. Okay. <laughs> for uh, our listeners, perhaps could you please uh, introduce yourself briefly? Mm-hmm. I'm Simone. I'm heading up the service design team at FutureGov, and I've been working for FutureGov quite a while, and my background um, is in media design and experience design, and gradually I um, evolved into a service designer. For those uh, listeners who do not know uh, FutureGov, could you please uh, explain a bit about what uh, FutureGov does? Yes, of course. So FutureGov is a um, digital and service design agency in in the UK. We are currently something like 40 people. Most of us are based in the UK, but there's also um, a small group of, I think, five or six people working in Australia. So we have an Australia office as well. Um, and the reason for that is just that um, our it, it seems to work really well. Australia, they've adopted our products and we're really interested in them. And so I think what we do is um, we, over the last years, I think FutureGov exists since eight years. Um, we've constantly tried to iterate um, our offer. <laughs> and so I think it started out more of a, as a product company. So we um, developed things like Casserole Club or Patchwork. Um, and over the, over the years, we realized that um, the consultancy work we do is, is almost as important. So we support local governments in whatever problems they have in the UK, most often they are under extremely financial pressures to deliver their services with huge drastic cuts and it's difficult for them and so they realise that they need a new way of thinking about delivering services and probably that a more innovative and a more user-centred way to do that works better than the way they've done it. Yeah, so that's, that's why we get on board with them. Mm-hmm. And I think, so as mentioned, most of our clients are from local governments in the UK. Um, we also work a little bit with central government in the UK, um, but also across across Europe. So one of our clients is um, the development program from the UN. And this brings us to um, nice places such as Armenia or Moldova or Georgia to help the UNDP work with governments on site there. And um, in these different cultures, different companies, are you actually using the same tools that you're using in the UK and same principles, or is it quite different? 
Um, that's really interesting. It's a really interesting question. And I think so in general, yes, we use the same tool, which is basically human-centered design. But but we realized as well that not not only in, in in far countries or in distant countries or cultures where you don't know about, for example, the UAE as well, um, you need to adjust or adopt your approaches. So I think also with local governments here, we might think that you know we can do the same things or we can use the same tools or the same techniques but then actually understanding the local local culture better or the the organizational culture better um there's always a moment of tweaking and adjusting your processes and making sure that it fits with what people need there yeah that's very interesting i'm also curious so i find for doing a yeah service design you you need to be there so when you do these projects yeah in in different countries with different cultures how much time do you actually spend there or is there a part of of the project that you are able to do remotely mm. how does that work mm. so i think there are different kinds of projects um Maybe maybe I start with that. So I think there's some some of our clients they get us in to solve a problem. So there's something really specific um, they struggle with and and they need an answer to that. There are other others which feel more interested in learning how we work and are more intrigued by our ways of thinking about things and they want to learn about service design. And the, so they are more about capability building. And then there are projects which are mich, ma, uh, mixing the two things, so solving a problem and capability building. And then it depends. So when we think about, for example, a project um, we've recently worked on in the UAE um, for the central government there was about supporting 80 government professionals to work in a more user-centered way so they can deliver services that increase people's happiness which is a really nice um, project, I think. And I th so the main objective was building new capabilities. But what our client was really strict about was that it's not enough just to do some workshops and show them a few tools or techniques how to do user-centered design, but also to deliver um, tangible outcomes for citizens. So it was a mixture between delivering some, some ideas and implementing some ideas for service redesigns, but also building new capabilities and this project was I think something like six months mm -hmm. and over the six months I think we've been there for six seven times so almost every three weeks every four weeks and we spent there something like one or two two weeks to work with with the teams on their projects and these projects they were these service service improvements were based around life events of an Emirati citizen so There were eight teams and projects we work on was having a new baby, um, getting married, studying abroad, coming to work in the UAE, getting retired, and so on and on. And so we had we, we had two different ways, I guess, to collaborate. So one was on site, which was easy. <laughs> But we, we just spent time with the teams and we helped them to go through the design process along their subjects. But then Like the more tricky bit was how do we work from abroad and how do we encourage them to continue working from abroad, and that was that was quite interesting and challenging for us. So there was of course a time difference, there was also of course cultural differences, and we had so as mentioned before we had to adjust our approach. So it started 
that we created Slack channels, invited everyone to um, to go on Slack, and we had mentors mentoring each team. And to be honest, this didn't really work very well. <laughs> um, okay. and so, Why is that? Um, I think because so the men, not all of the mentors could go there and meet um, the, the teams. So, so I think there was. I think in the in the in their culture, it was really really essential that you build trust with people. Um, especially if people ask you to try new things and start um, thinking in a different direction. So I think they'd like to know the person who suggests that a little bit better. And I think they need to see this person in action and meet this person before they follow their, I don't know, recommendations or ideas or lead. And so for some reason, the people we work with, that just didn't like Slack. They had other mm -hmm. tools they used. Um, and so we adjusted our way of working and really quickly we gave out our mobile numbers and we became members of their WhatsApp groups instead. Okay. And so um, a way of supporting the teams from abroad was basically by listening to voice messages they left via WhatsApp and responding with voice messages or taking part in the WhatsApp conversation. So like a, a much more intimate, I guess, intimate way of communi communicating than something like Slack could do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, a lot more personal, I guess, also yeah. really speaking to the, the person in itself. Exactly, yeah. I think that was a, a big lesson learned for me that so the, the more over there, the more personal the contact was, the better was our collaboration. So starting from things like... <laughs> I don't know, I was, I was invited to a wedding um, as part of the research, I guess. Or another lady, she was a, um, a falcon trainer <laughs> as a hobby, and she asked me whether I would come along to see her falcon. <laughs> and it was all these little things that really helped to, um, to build a, a relationship with, our, with them um, mm -hmm. and to build trust with them and to understand their culture, of course, so that... That collaborating and the skills transfer became much easier. Yeah, that's also something we find really uh, important that we organize workshops with clients and really uh, spend time together, get to know each other and work on a project together. Is, is that something you, you also uh, do? And uh, at what, what points in, in design process do you uh, mainly spend uh, time with your clients? Um, yes, so I think... So as mentioned, um, I think FutureGov has been developing over the years. And I remember in, when I started um, working for FutureGov, there was much more of we, us doing our work um, and us doing the research and us doing um, the analysis and then presenting maybe some insights and then going back again and doing some, you know, coming up with ideas and prototyping them and then presenting them again. And over the years, we learned that actually this is not always the most successful way to, to deliver projects and to make sure that projects don't end up in drawers, but actually get implemented. So we learned that it's the skills transfer, what, what I mentioned, what we've done deliberately in, in the UAE, that this becomes um, a bigger part in our work, even if we're not directly asked to do it. So that's forming a joint team with the client and us um, helps a lot in order to, to get work delivered. And it feels like um, the more time we spend on site with clients, 
the easier it is for them to understand our approach, our process, the more transparent things get, the more likely things get actually done and delivered. So probably on an average day, if you would visit FutureGov, <laughs> you'd be surprised how few people are in the office. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that most of, most of us work two, three, four days um, on site with clients instead of the office. You're saying, uh, yeah, it's always a challenge to make sure that the things you, do, you design are actually implemented. That makes me also think about uh, change. I saw you are heading uh, the change group at FutureGov. What do you do exactly in that group? So at FutureGov, we have something like um, an integrated design approach, if you want to call it like mm -hmm. total design. <laughs> mm -hmm. And we believe that service design itself is great, but probably you need other skills as well in order to deliver a service successfully. And one of, so it's three different areas. So one is, of course, service design, one is organizational design or change, and the third one is product design. So product design in terms of um, digital design. So in these different teams, there are different kinds of designer. In the, in the product design team, there are UX designers and front-end and back-end developers, agile coaches, and so on. In the service design team, there are user researchers, service designers, and in the organizational design team, there are people, some of them have a background in local government, so they come from a different, from, from a different perspective. Um, some of them have a background in organization design. And what they do is they make sure that as much as we care about the people using our products or our services, that we put enough emphasis on the people who deliver our services um, and who commission our services. So basically the people who wear more of the client hat. And they make sure that what we do is the right thing, what the client needs and what the, what the client can work with. So in practical terms, when we think about what they do, so the, the way we normally start our, our projects, it's always um, a team of two or three people, so one service designer, one organization designer, and one product designer. And the two or three of us, we make sure that we co collaborate really, really closely. We understand the user needs and the client's needs. Um, we have an idea what would bring the biggest change and when what good looks like. Um, and if, you, if you're interested in how exactly the roles define and who's doing what, um, I think we're quite flexible in that. <laughs> so um, I think some of the organizational designers have really strong um, abilities in doing research and some of our service designers are really, really good understanding organizations and what they need. So it's always a little bit depends who works together. But in the end, it's the organizational design team is responsible for making sure that the insights which are, which are generated in the service design team, that they, they land on a fruitful ground in the organization and that the organization cares about it and knows what to do with it. And often this might end up translating um, user needs into numbers, into statistics, maybe even a business case. So backing up the, the ethnographic research and backing up our ideas 
into things that can be delivered. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah. think that's a very interesting uh, approach that you already bring uh, three of the different profiles together in the beginning of the process. Because often the product designer will come later on because first the research uh, will be done, or at least that's how I notice that it's done in, in a lot of uh, companies. Mm. So I, I find it quite interesting that you already put them uh, together from the first uh, start of the project. Yeah. So this is, this is what it ideally looks like. Um, and so sometimes it doesn't quite work like that, right? Sometimes budgets are too small or time is too tight, but it's, it's like, like the, the, the golden way. How we want to do it is that there is the three of us starting on the project or, and if that doesn't work, at least bringing in like the missing person as soon as possible, as soon as there's like the first idea or the first, I don't know, the first input we need with a more technical perspective or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. also it rings a lot of bells uh, for me. Uh, we, we have a product design team, we have service design mm-hmm. team, and I found very naturally we, we are evolving to doing a lot of organization design. Mm-hmm. It, it just is part of the the problem that needs to be solved mm-hmm. often At present we don't have a separate team for that mm-hmm. those are, are our service designers as well um but that's interesting you need to see that really as a, as a separate uh, activity almost mm-hmm. um, another thing you said that i think is a good point not every service designer is exactly the same we're dealing with just lots of people with all very different expertises and uh, experiences what i what we find sometimes is a challenge yeah, when when you grow uh, you become a bit bigger more people how are you able to yeah provide a consistent uh, experience towards your uh, customer with such different profiles do you have any any experience with that yourself Mm, let me think Um, so I think I think the service designers in my team I think they they have all I mean they have a lot a lot in common of course they are all super empathetic they have really good skills in understanding user needs and distilling them to insights they're all super creative and they, they, don't, they all can express themselves visually. So I think the basics, all of, you know, all of them are amazing in. Um, and I think the differences they have, this is really valuable for clients because of that we can find the right person working on the, on the right challenge. So I think that, I think in, if you talk about consistency of our work, how do we make sure it's always consistent? <laughs> so I think, yeah, I think... Maybe it doesn't, yeah. doesn't need to be consistent. <laughs> so, yeah, I think... So if we talk about consistency, I think there's... Um, so internally, we have developed some some uh, process, I guess, um, which is... I think there are three or four steps within each project when the, pro- the project team comes together with all the management team and together we discuss the project at certain points and at certain milestones and these so these sessions are called work in progress i don't know maybe you do something similar we we tend to follow uh, agile methodology very much yeah uh, so we yeah often in bigger projects we we have daily team stand-ups yeah yeah so this is something we do as well but i think then so three or four times during a project that that comes in like a, a wider so not only the project team but people outside the project team and these people outside the project team, they can almost be used as 
consultants as well, so in, internal consultants for the project. Mm-hmm. Um, they work as challengers, so they it can, sometimes can be quite painful because they point out like all the little things you are not quite sure yet and you'd rather not think about, <laughs> and you can be sure that they put the finger in. Um, and so I think these these sessions help us to make sure that all the all the, the work we do at each step is in a really good quality and you know ha- has been has been reviewed by others and has input has received input from others who are not directly working it. So like you know we make sure that there's a fresh pair of eyes coming into projects like several times. Yeah. Um, and I think this so if we talk about I don't know consistency, I think this is a, a good way for us which works to make sure that all our our projects are really, really good. I think that's a very good tip for uh, service design teams. I hope they will like it because, like I said, it can be quite painful as well. Yes, yes, <laughs> uh, that's, that's part of the job, right? Yeah, it's necessary at some point. Uh, otherwise, the client will do it anyway, probably. That's true. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. That's true. And that will be more painful. Yeah. Very true. Okay, I have a quite general question actually for you. At FutureGov, mm-hmm. you're doing uh, projects for governments, but mm-hmm. I would like to know from you, like, what is your drive uh, for focusing on projects for mm-hmm. governments? So before working in the public sector, I worked for for an agency working with clients like Lufthansa or Deutsche Post, the German Post, um, and I liked the work. And it's really nice to do cool tech pro- um, products for cool people in the end. But there's always a little bit of dissatisfaction when you think that who is actually using that product and is it really relevant? And what about all the other interactions you have like outside of a more com- of the commercial world and the people who use these services? So it feels like our experience is so shaped by, I don't know, by things like Uber and Deliveroo by WhatsApp and Snapchat and Instagram and we are used to really good receiving really good services um, but then I don't know <laughs> so I don't know how it is compared but if you I don't know if you want to get a new passport or if you want to register your, or do your tax declaration it, it brings tears in my eyes because it's so complicated and the problem with that is that you know if you have the money you can pay for the services and you can You can jump barriers or you can go around it. But if you don't have the money, you're really, really, really dependent on these services. I don't know if you've ever, you know, tried to find a carer for your mom or if you've ever had to navigate through through a healthcare system. And these things, they can be really, really painful. And the people who suffer from that pain are the ones who deserve it least. Mm. So I think this is the main motivation. So, you know making government services as cool and easy to use as all the other services we are familiar with in the in the commercial world because the people who use government services and who are dependent from government services they really deserve better yeah no i think uh, i can see us both nodding here also uh, in in our context i don't know if you know much about belgian government but it's not government but governments it's very complicated the french part the Dutch part, yeah. the federal part, etc., and they each have their own uh, platforms uh, and everything. Oh, so okay. we we have many many examples here of uh, yeah, 
especially digital products uh, that definitely can be uh, be improved mm -hmm. um, and I, I also think it's very exciting that you can make a big difference with those things yeah who realizes the need for change in in Belgian government well actually we've ended up in a situation now where the uh, Flemish government, so that's the Dutch-speaking part, um, they have really embraced service design as a way yeah. to uh, to improve things. There's a there's a big project called uh, Radically Digital uh, 2020, uh, <laughs> where they aim to be 100% digital uh, by then, uh, oh, wow. and and they see service design as as the way to do it. That, okay. that's that's one small part <laughs> who sees it that way I mean mm -hmm. a lot of the governments still do not know about service design but at least there is a there is a core uh, that is uh, yeah trying to bring the message <laughs> to other mm -hmm. parts of the government and, and was uh, that was that started or is that politically you know desired or where did it start well, there was a department called Design Flanders, uh, uh -huh. which uh, its purpose was to figure out how, how design can help government. And from there, they have learned that service design is a very valuable tool. And then bit by bit, yeah, more agencies have appeared uh, who are doing this for government. And the way the situation we're in now there's actually a, a framework contract for uh, service design and there's a couple of companies who, who can deliver service design for the government uh, mm -hmm. so that's relatively luxury i think compared to some places uh, yeah it but it sounds there's a start so that sounds really good yeah yeah, we always see the uk as a big example with gov uk etc yeah. so can you explain us maybe a little bit more how you think the government in the UK is thinking about service design and dealing with it? Yeah. Um, so I think in in the UK, I think it's down to it's down to the financial pressure and it's down to um, austerity that people realize that they can't continue delivering services in the same way simply because the pressure is too too high and they can't they can't deliver anymore like that. So I think this is a big driver for innovation. And compared to, for example, Germany, um, where I'm originally from, it feels like that they are a little bit behind. And I always wonder why that is. And it feels like that, so maybe the on one side, the financial pressure isn't that high. So they feel like they can still afford to deliver services in a non-digital way or a non-user-centered um, way. And they continue the way yeah, they, the way they do things and there's not a massive appetite for change or at least I haven't experienced that yet, which is a little bit sad. And in the UK, I think GDS has done amazing work. So it's the it's a government digital service and they started out um, as a unit. It sounds a little bit like Design Flander, like the Design Flanders um, you mentioned, but mm -hmm. on a, not on a local level or on a federal level, but in the central government. And they they started introducing things like talking about users first or citizens first before we talk about organizational needs. Um, and they started talking about agile methodologies and they introduced that to the wider to the wider government. And today, like all the different departments have their own digital their own, own digital teams. So they work, they bring in um, designers, they bring in developers, 
and they do skills transfer with them. So public public servants um, who used to work in you know in in their way now start to learn service design techniques and now start to learn think changing their way the, the way they think about delivering services and about creating services. So it feels like that they they are doing really the best thing they can to start thinking the way they work and uh, changing the way they work and think in a different way. Yeah, and I, I, so I agree. I think what they, they've done is um, is quite impressive and it's, like, yeah, it's quite unique. And so our work is, I think it made our work easier as well. As mentioned, we don't, our main focus is not central government, but local governments. But through the work of GDS, local governments have realized that Digital is a thing, and design is a thing um, to think about. And I think they, yeah, they were a bit the avant-garde, and they made it a little bit easier for us to convince um, chief executives in local government that they should give it a try. One thing that sometimes frustrates me when I see it is, uh, yeah, if if there's a lot of duplicate work going on. So, for instance, with local governments developing mm. a, a platform for finding mm. a daycare for your children, and the other has done it as well, and the other one as well, and it's like, oh, why can't you all uh, do that uh, together? <laughs> uh, do you find that there's a, a transition in the UK where there's more work happening to collaboratively? Like they mm. share resources, mm. a little bit, I guess. But I, so, but first of all, I, I share your pain and I share your frustration around that. And I think this is this is a reason why we started to build our own products. For example, Casserole Club that I mentioned in the beginning. So maybe I can talk a little bit about it quickly. Yes, go ahead. Um, so it's a so, so for example, social isolation in older people. We've come across that so many times in different locations all over the UK. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a problem that occurs in one area only. And we we developed a service called Casserole Club, which allows individuals to cook an extra portion of food and to be to connect with someone isolated and elderly in your neighborhood. So you can pop by and deliver your food. Um, you can do that once or you can do that regularly, however you want. Um, and the matchmaking is done via our website, but the service, of course, is a little bit like a nicer version of Meals on Wheels. And so we, the, our way to do that was so we, we developed it together with one council, but thought of it as a, as a, as a product that we, can, that we can offer other councils as well. And it was really great to see that there are councils all over the UK being interested in that service and investing in that product. And then it was even better when we saw that in Australia the sa there is the same interest in that. Um, and so we have a few products like that that we feel can, you know, can stop um, duplication and can stop like, several people thinking about the same problem and coming up with similar um, solutions. So we feel that this could be a way to prevent that happening. Well, that's indeed, indeed interesting, just taking it in your own hands <laughs> to make sure it can be used uh, in different places. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One, one development that is happening now in, in, in Flanders is uh, one government agency called Information Flanders. They, they are developing certain uh, building blocks, ah. for instance, that can be used by different uh, 
government yeah, digital yeah, services. Yeah. So I think that's a, definitely a good uh, a good start. One one of these examples, for instance, is a. It's just a, a simple platform that collects the status of your, your files, your requests, ah. uh, your subsidy uh, requests, etc. And uh, it's a very simple thing, just collects a very little bit of information from each of these different uh, spread out government agencies, but at least we're able to show it in one place now and say, like, this is for one person, the, the different uh, files that are going on. That's, yeah, how I pictured uh, it going more, getting getting mm. more of the central uh, building blocks. But indeed, yeah, you can do it the other way around as well. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> interesting. But I think it's, it's, happen it's happening the same way here as well, that the work GDS is doing that local government could rely on that and could take buildings, building blocks of that as well. But I think there's many local governments when we introduce the idea of reusing um, work, of reusing products, existing products, they are quite convinced that their situation is very unique and they have very unique needs. <laughs> I don't mm -hmm. know if you, if, if you have experienced similar things. So it can be quite um, challenging to overcome that <laughs> what what are these uh, patterns that you find with uh, with local uh, councils things that keep coming back problems that you keep seeing are there any things that you think of um yeah so i think so finding information on their websites is, is difficult and causes to calls and contacts which are you know which which is which are a pain for citizens because they don't want to call and they don't want to go there but they just want to know the answer from the website um, and things like booking things like you said I think you mentioned that as well or tracing things yeah, I think these are the, the main things that basically all of them share and could reuse yeah I'm actually wondering about I had a conversation with a person a couple of days ago. And we were thinking uh, they're tr also trying to uh, teach um, governments uh, about service design, like you already talked uh, about a lot. Um, and even setting up a own service design department in the government. And I was wondering if that would be the right way to, uh, to actually approach it, that they will have uh, service designers in-house and even hire uh, people who could focus on the service, or do you think it's it's still something that needs to be uh, uh, like outsourced to to mm. other companies? How do you see this? Mm. Um, I think it would be great if they if they realized the need for in-house designers. I think that would be really really great, and I think some some of our clients do. But the, so there 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 are several issues, I guess, or or things that might be barriers. So if you if you look around in the UK and you have a look um, on the map where the service designers are and want to hang out and where local governments are that need service designers, you quickly understand that there is a little bit of a gap. So they are all <laughs> living in London and the local governments are obviously not in London. Mm -hmm. So it can be quite challenging for local governments, even if they realised it or if they saw the need um, to find the right people and and to pay them as well, of course. Um, and then I think for a lot of designers, it's not mo the most attractive workplace as well. Um, <laughs> because they have the idea that local governments are 
a little bit grey and you have to wear, I don't know, like you can't wear trainers and no jeans and so on and on and on. Um, and so I think it's, I don't know, I'd love to know more people who work in local government as designer. But unfortunately, I don't know many, but I know a few at least. Um, so we, we in our everyday work, we learn so much about local government. Um, and when a project is finished and when we leave, we, we take the knowledge with us, of course. We try to share as much as we can and we hope that um, the knowledge stays there as well. But in the end, I just wonder how would it look like, how could projects be delivered if, um, if it was done by service designers or developers in-house? Yeah, so I, I'm, I think it's a good idea that local governments hire designers. Yeah, what do you what do you think what is your what is your thinking around that yeah i was just having a small discussion with someone that they said there should be a design department in mm -hmm. the government but then you you create this atmosphere of a the designer who was always always going to tell how everything <laughs> uh, needs to go mm -hmm. and that it would be a better way to just teach a lot of different people mm. with different respo mm. responsibilities in government a certain service mm. design skills mm. uh, so they could really implement it in their day-to-day mm. uh, -day jobs mm. instead of uh, putting a certain profile of a designer in the organization. Mm. But I didn't really have a, an answer to it. Mm. I think it's both, both possible. Mm. But I, think, I think you're right there. So if you talk about a design department, I think so we've been involved in... Um, helping some local governments to set up an innovation lab, they called it. Probably it's a, it's a little bit what you described. So if you set up an innovation lab, there's always the risk of creating an innovation ghetto. So that these are the people who are allowed or who, who can and who have the permission to think differently and think creatively, where, whereas the others just continue their job as they've used to, as they used to. And I think this is probably not the the right approach. So if you think about um, creating an innovation lab, I think it's, it's, it's essential that you make sure that it's not the end goal. So ideally, if you have something like an innovation lab or, a, I don't know, a design department, that it makes itself redundant so that eventually um, you can close it because the whole organization has become innovative or has become design-minded. And I think this is what... GDS is 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 doing or is is on the way of doing so that they um, they spread out of 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 their own little design department and that they make sure that they are embedded and that people are embedded in all the different departments. So it's more about bringing create uh, creative capabilities or design capabilities into projects than into departments, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I agree on that. Yeah, I also I love the term uh, innovation ghetto. That's not <laughs> one I had heard, but uh, it it uh, yeah. You know what I mean, I guess. I can right? imagine exactly what you mean. Indeed, yeah. <laughs> I think this this whole yeah we need to more make the whole uh, uh, organization or or uh, government more. Uh, user-centered. <laughs> this is a very big challenge though. We find that often it's quite hier hierarchical uh, here. The targets come from above and people, uh, all messages go in one way and you can't really take uh, much initiative and uh, and try things your own way. Um, mm. Then becoming, yeah, 
human-centered or more customer-centered is a big challenge. Mm. Do you have any experiences where you found something to be really successful in, in making a turnaround mm. in, in a government organization? Mm. I, th yeah, I think what we all, like the situation we often have is that there is buy-in from the very, very top. Mm -hmm. um, so this is why we get we get challenged um, with that task, and then we work with teams and we talk about being user centered and we talk about doing research, and we get them outside to do research and leave their desk and leave the office and to talk to real people, and um, there's always you know it's always a little bit of a challenge because people are quite comfortable in the end in their office and it's uncomfortable to speak to strangers and especially if it's on the street and. So I understand all that, and it's great that people come back and they feel really enthused, enthused and um, feel really proud of their bravery of speaking to real people. But then the, the issue is that what we often see is that the middle management or their managers, they are not part of the process. So there might be, like, top-down, there's the idea of let's become more innovative, let's become more citizen-centered, um, and then the people... On the front, they are super happy about that and they are willing to change their way of working and they're, um, they're willing to try new techniques. Um, and so we realize that we have to be really careful not to forget anyone in the process of, of convincing and of you know, letting people try and experiment with these, th with these things. Um, because I, I remember that in the, the project I mentioned earlier when we've been to the UAE, um, at the end, I talked to one woman, and she said she feels like she's she's the right person in the wrong place um, mm. because she has learned all these new techniques and new tools, and she felt really, really strongly about I think it was ethnographic research, and she felt that she knows she knows much more about what people need when she talks to them, but her manager didn't quite approve, and the way he wanted to work was different, mm. so. In the end, she was more unhappy than before we started the work um, because she couldn't use all her skills. And it feels like this is a risk we need to be aware of when we do things like skills transfer, that, um, that we make sure that people are encouraged to use these skills and that we don't forget what these, what these new skills replace so that people can actually use them because otherwise... Yeah, I think that, I don't know if you've observed this, that as well, that people just feel like they're not, not at the right place anymore and that they start even to look for other jobs with their new skills. And that's not quite the point. No. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah. yeah. So in, in practical terms, I guess what we try to do is that we do, so alongside the work with teams and people designing, delivering services, that we do something like leadership sessions or that we make sure that um, we don't forget um, middle management in the process, that we share our work, that we get their input really early on, um, that we are transparent with what we change and how we, how we change it and that we get their input in what their objectives um, mm -hmm. are so that yeah, we can avoid the situation of someone feeling really... Um, positive about trying new things and then mm -hmm. not being allowed to try new things. Yeah, there's one one 
uh, person in government uh, who I once heard something uh, say something that I quote quite often. Uh, he said, uh, yeah, we can't change it from the top. We can't change it from the bottom. We need to change it from the middle. Oh, that's interesting. And, uh, yeah. Uh, that's actually a long time ago uh, that uh, he said that, so uh, that's coming mm. back right now. So uh, that's indeed a good uh, So how do you change goal. it from the middle if that's, if that's the golden rule? How do, you, yeah. how do you do it? How do you start? I, I, I think indeed that's what you say. It's, it's involving uh, those people uh, in the middle. Mm. And, and it's very easy to indeed think we start at the top or we start completely at the bottom because that's the most uh, customer centric. Mm. Um, but indeed involving uh, the different levels throughout mm. an organization. And how do I, you involve them? Well, in our case, that's one of several things. It's involving people by interviewing them, mm -hmm. uh, involving people by uh, taking them into uh, workshops. Mm -hmm. um, and that I find by far the most valuable, especially if we have the different groups together. Uh, wow. So like the different levels together in one workshop, mm -hmm. though sometimes uh, that, that does, once the high level leaves the room, suddenly the dynamics do change quite a bit. <laughs> for uh, the better or for the worse? Well, uh, they change, okay. I think. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's good when, when the senior management is there and mm -hmm. decisions are just made. Uh, this is the way it is sometimes. Uh, on the other hand, you you learn more about the real uh, needs <laughs> when they are not there. Yeah. So we try to have a mix of both. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> I think it's been super interesting talking to you. There's lots of uh, triggers for different uh, topics to go into. Are there any things that you would like to uh, plug? Uh, um, no, I don't think so. So um, I'm intrigued by um, finding out more about service design in, in the public in Belgium now. So <laughs> I'll do some reading and maybe we can, I don't know, yeah, I, I need to do a little bit of reading to understand how exactly it works with the federal and central government. Yeah. Um, it sounds like extra complicated. <laughs> <laughs> We'd always be happy to, uh, to share our okay. experiences uh, if you're interested. <laughs> and uh, if you're in Belgium, always welcome uh, to visit our studio, of oh, course. That would be lovely. <laughs> The Service Design Podcast was brought to you by the Service Design Network and Night Moves. For more information, previous episodes, or to join the conversation, please visit servicedesignpodcast.com. For more information about the Service Design Network, visit service-design-network.org. And for Night Moves, visit nightmoves.be. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast. The intro and outro music is from If the Stars Grow Dim Tonight, by Hydrogen C featuring I Will I Swear. Until next time.
Uh, uh, um, de... Um, um, uh, uh, 